got two very special guests to talk about uh, emergency response preparedness, uh, especially in light of COVID-19 and pandemic. So our first guest is Dr. Nina Kadorshvili. She's a global expert in health security and health system emergency preparedness and resilience. And she serves as the principal of the healthcare resilience practice for Jacobs. She has more than 15 years of healthcare systems consulting experience supporting the United States Department of Defense, and most recently, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency's Biological Threat Reduction Program. Dr. David Franz serves as commander of the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases and as deputy commander of the Medical Research and Material Command. He was chief inspector on three United Nations Special Commission Biological Warfare Inspection Missions to Iraq. And his current focus is on the role of international engagement in public health and the life sciences as a component of global security. So Nino and David, thank you both for joining me today. Uh, to start us off, I've got a question for Nino. Uh, and the question is, Nino, what are the characteristics of COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic, and how does that compare to other epidemics and pandemics in the past? Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. I think I need to start with a little bit of description of what COVID-19 is. Uh, that's a disease that is caused by severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2. And it's a single RNA uh, virus that belongs to a very large virus family. And the most of those uh, do not affect the human population. Only seven of those viruses are known to affect the human population, and most of them are causing a very mild symptoms. However, three out of those seven viruses cause a pretty devastating diseases. And the first of them, and probably the, you all know, it's a SARS uh, that started in 2002, 2003. Mm -hmm. And the second uh, virus of this family that is known to us is uh, MERS-CoV. And it's a Middle East a respiratory virus that originates and kind of circulates in camel population and time to time affects the human population as well. And the last one definitely is the SARS-CoV-2 that uh, everybody knows now. And it's a novel pathogen just emerging. So we are still learning about this pathogen. So there's not a, a lot of commonalities there that I can bring up. As, uh, to the second, um, question of, second part of your question as um, to other outbreaks and pandemics, the one that definitely comes to mind is 2009 pandemic, um, 2001, uh, 2009 H1N1, a so-called swine flu pandemic mm. that uh, affected many people around the globe. And uh, it's estimated they claimed like 150,000 to half million deaths around the world. And another one pandemic that comes to mind is definitely the HIV AIDS pandemic that claimed 36 million lives around the world. So one thing that, um, and other smaller pandemics, but no less important are West Ebola, uh, West Africa Ebola outbreak, DRC Ebola outbreak, Zika virus outbreak that uh, we've seen recently. And a lot of this, uh, the commonalities that I can bring here I want to say that a lot of infections, the most of infections that affect human population, 75% of these uh, infections are originating from animal populations. So I want to say that it's really critical to pay attention to one health. Mm -hmm. And this is the approach that is multidisciplinary and um, collaborative approach 
with the aim to have a positive health outcomes, but taking into account the ecosystem and connectedness, ecosystem of where we live and connectedness of human, animal and plant population. So I would uh, stop here and just say like, uh, that's the commonality that I could bring between the different types of the outbreaks that we've seen in the past, in the recent past. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And, and I, I think we're going to touch on it a little later in terms of like, why our response to this pandemic has been different from maybe the others that you just mentioned, especially some of those others that had higher death tolls or higher infection rates. So, um, hey, Paul, I'd just like to add one note to that yeah, excellent yeah. Uh, summary. And I think one thing that's really unique about, not totally unique, similar to flu in some cases, but there have been so many subclinical cases here that shed the virus. So finding out who has the virus and who's shedding it has been really difficult. So what does that mean when you say shedding the virus or sub, subclinical? So for some of us who are not medical experts, what's, what's that mean? Subclinical means you, you feel or look normal. You don't have clinical signs. Gotcha. And shedding the virus uh, means that you're infectious. If someone is around you or you cough in their face or sneeze in their face, you're infectious, even though you may not have clinical signs. And I don't know that we know the percentage in the whole community like that, but certainly that's an issue that's made this really, uh, really tough. If, if you only shed virus after you were ill, as with Ebola, for example, mm -hmm. we could quarantine you and put you away so that you're protected from other people and other people are protected from you gotcha. uh, as soon as you become ill or show clinical signs or a fever. But it's, the, the lines are not, a, the lines are blurrier with this, uh, so stuff. you're saying that I could have had coronavirus gotten better, but then be, have been shedding it after the fact and not been aware of that. Is that? Well, for certain, certainly during the time and maybe before, a few mm -hmm. days before, there's some evidence that uh, some PCR, well, here we go with technical things, but there's some evidence that people have at least fragments of RNA from the virus after they've recovered. So with a routine test, you might look positive to the test, but you need to be careful because those might be RNA fragments from the virus and not intact, viable oh, virus. I got you. After. I think, Paul, would, uh, also to add what Dr. Franz was uh, explaining, mm -hmm. David mentioned about the infectious phase, and I think the most critical to healthcare workers and the people around you is the part when you don't, you don't have fever, you don't exhibit symptoms, but you go around and like, infect everybody and that's mm. the critical phase that mostly starts even in the symptomatic patients the first few days before you become fully symptomatic those are the critical parts and I, I think it's also worth mentioning that this particular virus has a high contagiousness the high are not um, a number and that's what's causing the concern in the healthcare workers because one person can infect four people around you and then four infect another four. So that becomes 16 and so on and so right. forth. And that's, uh, that's very concerning, the speed mm. on, of uh, transmission. Okay. So, so David, your background is in understanding the threats posed by bio biological warfare and how to safeguard you know, a country uh, and safeguard a homeland. How does COVID-19 compare to biological weapons? What are the similarities and what are the differences? 
Yes, uh, you're right. I, I started in the mid-80s in what we called biosecurity, Cold War biological warfare defense, and then uh, later management of high containment lab uh, virology and, and bacteriology research. And then eventually after I left the military, I got involved in po uh, policy issues like dual use research and gain of function and some of those, those buzzwords that we hear. To answer your question, I, my answer now is different than it would have been 20 years ago. Hmm. I think there's not that much difference actually between uh, a naturally occurring event, or at least how we prepare for it, a naturally occurring event and, a, uh, and an intentional event. We still need to discover the, the index case or the, the early cases. We need to diagnose it. We need to treat it. Um, we need to look at the population. And in, in a naturally occurring event, we tend to call it epidemiology in a uh, warfare or, um, or terrorist event we might call it forensics. And those are very similar things. So I think one of our uh, problems in this country is that we, we were focused during the Cold War on what we called the dirty dozen biological agents that the Soviets were preparing to use against us in the Fulda Gap, or later we learned even in this country. Uh, and what we didn't, switch to or we didn't realize after the Cold War was over was that although we didn't have these this focused enemy in the former Soviet Union, almost anything is possible from terrorism or from uh, biological warfare or from nature and they're really more similar than, uh, than we uh, once thought. One big difference is we did not produce highly contagious agents for biological warfare, either in our old offensive program, nor did the Soviet Union, except we both worked with smallpox a little bit. But almost everything else was not highly contagious, which differentiate, differentiates it from uh, what we're seeing today. But I think now anything's possible and we should prepare for anything. I have a friend, former Secretary of the Navy, uh, named uh, by name of Richard Danzig, uh, who some of you may know, who wrote a really interesting piece 10 or 15 years ago called Driving in the Dark. Uh, it's really hard for us to predict. Mm -hmm. So my sense is that we should work on natural, man-made, and accidental, and it won't be inefficient if all of us kind of think about all of those possibilities and prepare for what might be just one of them. And that's interesting because you, you mentioned like, a, you know, kind of, a, I guess the old school biological warfare mentality was to create non-contagious agents, you know, so you could affect, infect, I, I suppose, a certain population without it just being like this spreading to like a global pandemic. But now it sounds like the shift in mindset is treat everything as if it can be highly contagious and prepare for that. And so, well, so Nino... Yeah, so oh. I was, I was going to ask you, Nino, in your opinion, what are the best practices for preparedness and can we truly be prepared? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. um, I know it's not a very encouraging answer to hear, but I would like to explain what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. Yes, because we do have a lot of lessons learned um, from naturally or man-made uh, pandemics and outbreaks and whatnot. 
and just learning. Um, science went really far. And so we know how pathogens behave. Therefore, we do have a frameworks, plans, the recommendations. Those are mostly that if I need to find something, I always go to Health and Human Services, ASPR and CDC, as well as World Health Organization has a lot of frameworks and um, recommendations that uh, health uh, agencies around the world can use. So that's the part where I say, yes, we, we have some preparedness. And quite a lot of has been written about pandemic flu preparedness because flu has devastated us many different kinds of, has uh, devastated the population many times. So we have a lot of versions of that pandemic preparedness. However, the, the part where I said, no, we can't be prepared. For example, it was very evident that we were not prepared to withstand this particular pandemic. And that's not because, uh, not only because that um, people forgot that preparedness is very important. And I think we got a little bit um, too relaxed about that. That's a one component. But also let's not forget that this is a novel pathogen. It's evolving. And we simply couldn't have the countermeasures to combat this disease, right? We are still learning and research is still ongoing. So we don't have the vaccine. We don't have the preventive measures, so to speak, other than just regular, like keep the distance and wash your hands. We don't have the vaccine. We do not have uh, effective medication to use uh, in the cases. Also, we are still learning how to use certain procedures like um, intubation of patient has been attracted a lot of attention around the, the, around the globe. There's different indications when to intubate, when to extubate, how to use it. So again, certain factors we couldn't influence, but there are certain things we could have done better. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say we are half prepared, maybe a little bit not prepared as well. Okay. And I'm sure David has some suggestions and thoughts there. Just this one thought, uh, I, t I totally agree. Uh, but if I could prepare in one way, only one way, what I would do is try to prepare subject matter experts that could sit around my table when, uh, when the problems arise and that could work together and uh, develop approaches and plans uh, even after the fact. Uh, and subject matter experts is something you can't do overnight. We think it takes a long time to make a vaccine. It takes even longer to make a subject matter expert. Mm. Uh, and yet, in, to my mind, that is probably the most valued asset uh, in a time of crisis like this. It sounds simple, but it's very so, important. And I've got, a, I've got a question here in, in a little bit. I'm going to ask you about interagency inter communication. I think we'll touch on that. But... My question for you, Dave, uh, you know, we kind of talked about it in terms of like the differences, um, similarities and differences between a biological weapon and a natural occurring pathogen. But this one maybe is a little bit of a nuance there, but what would the response to an outbreak caused by a bioweapon differ from an outbreak that is caused by a natural occurring pathogen? Like, where, where would you see there being maybe some differences or does it really not matter other than the, in the forensics trying to determine the, the index of like where it came from, but. It's funny, uh, I, we used to teach a course on medical management of biological casualties at the Institute when I was commander. And, mm -hmm. and one of the things I remember te the, the, the instructors teaching in that course was you can tell a bioweapon from a natural event because 
in a bioweapon, it may very likely be multifocal. And so uh, the bad guys might release this in very in two different subway systems or, or uh, in uh, a stadium or something like that in different areas. And a natural event, we would say dogmatically, was always just starts at one spot and it spreads. And if you look at what has happened in this case, because of transportation and because of this silent shedding of viruses that we talked about, these, uh, the virus was seeded all over the world in our cities and uh, you know, destinations of, for air travel and so on. So uh, our old definition didn't work at all in that case. Uh, but I think in, with regard to preparedness, I've already said SMEs, subject matter experts is what I want. Uh, we can have platform vehicles available, platforms for diagnostics, a system where all you have to change is the reagents, the machine stays the same, or platforms for vaccines. Uh, we can have medical material and disposables. We need to think about those things. Do we want to offshore and buy them all from overseas or do we want to have our own, uh, our own systems in place? And then another place where uh, that is really critical and I think it's similar for if you take 9-11 or the anthrax letters or now the, the coronavirus uh, is public information and education. It's so critical. Uh, help the, helping the public know how to calculate risk. Should I go buy groceries? Or in the case of post 9-11, should I fly on an airplane? Or is there gonna be another terrorist uh, on my airplane? You know, those kinds of things. So I think again, I know this is a boring answer, but I think we've got to look at them as similar problems mm -hmm. because we can use the same kinds of expertise uh, and we can use many of the same responses to natural, intentional, or accidental events. So, so kind of shifting a little bit, Nino, you had you'd kind of started to allude to this, and I want to uh, kind of press further on this topic. But what are the most pressing challenges, both in the U.S. and internationally, with regards to pandemic preparedness that are not receiving enough attention? I think David started talking about this. A little bit, but let me start saying uh, with the um, with explaining that a pandemic has a different phases, right? So as the, we are going through the different phases, uh, the challenges are changing a little bit. So two months ago, we were struggling with the certain things. I'm not going to uh, bother you with uh, listing all of this, but currently, Dave started mentioning that uh, understanding the full scope of the disease is the difficult. Uh, it's, it's a challenge. For example, understanding how many active cases we have, how many asymptomatic uh, patients we have, and how to deal with that, those numbers, because that directly impacts your um, ability or state's ability or country's ability to reopen and re-engage the society, right? So with that, I think, for example, uh, understanding or uh, tackling the challenges of um, testing, that could be more also as acute testing as well as serological testing to understand like what type of the, uh, what's the percentage of immune population. And Dave mentioned a little bit about uh, shedding of RNA particles after the, the person goes through the disease and is like uh, recovered. Still there are cases um, uh, that have been, uh, I would say captured that the person is 
shedding the RNA particles. So it confuses the science or so to speak the machine. Like, are you actively being sick right now or are you actually uh, cured, but you're still exhibiting some like uh, particles or like shedding some particles. So understanding those will be very critical. Also contact tracing. Think about it. If we are preparing for a second wave or any other waves mm -hmm. coming to our way or any other type of contagious pathogen that could spread in the future, uh, understanding contact tracing in a massive global country like in a massive country like the United States, it's a really huge undertaking. And um, in traditional sense, contact tracing can be done by humans. Just go around with a piece of paper and like checking how many people you contacted, etc. But it, as you can imagine, this is a huge uh, human resource investment. So I think that that's a challenge that we are facing currently. And the last one I want to uh, emphasize uh, is just the mobilizing of resources on the right time, right place. And uh, they also touched on that where to get those resources. And that includes not only uh, the uh, PCR machines or diagnostic kits and et cetera, but also human resources. Because that's, those are the people who need to get this done. The machines are not gonna run the test by themselves or take the samples and et cetera. So that so, would be my trying to be short on the challenges. As now internationally, Paul, uh, all the countries are in a different phases of pandemic. That's why I mentioned the pandemic phases in the beginning. So. Yeah. Germany might be facing a different challenges right now versus Singapore and versus United States or versus African countries because they are in a different stages of, uh, of pandemic right now. Yeah, and that's interesting. And you, you touched on it, you know, going back to David's point about subject matter expertise, you know, it's then it's, you know, is it a matter of, you know, as countries kind of come through it or whatever, is moving people around like within your healthcare system, like, oh, we need more, we don't need more beds, we need more doctors, you know, so send us doctors from say different parts of the country or the community or whatever. So then that, that puts added healthcare challenges on existing communities who are having to maybe consider moving their experts and whatnot. So that's kind of interesting. Paul, the, Paul, what you bring up there reminds me that leadership is also a, a pressing challenge, I think, at all levels. Uh, at, our, at our institute and our science levels in some cases, but also nationally and at WHO, uh, at CDC, we've, we need to work on, you know, on uh, rewarding enlightened leadership, I think, in our, in our institutions. And what what leadership brings then is some of that organizational piece that you were just talking about, but also yeah. open communication between experts mm -hmm. and between organizations, which is critical. And the, the long-term goal is to build trust between all those people that are working together so that they work as a team. And we, you don't have to look far to find some challenges that we've faced in, in all of those areas uh, in the last three months. So you, you, you kind of tee this up, this, you know, it's this idea of like how the current pandemic may change the way that healthcare systems in the United States and, and probably internationally meet future pandemic challenges. So where do you see that going? Where, where do you see changes being made? Like the lessons that we're learning now, the hard way maybe, that we can apply, you know, and, or we will apply going forward. 
I just wrote a, a short paper for an Indian friend from the Indian Defense Studies and Analysis Center in, in New Delhi. It was in print for many years. And I entitled it, um, sorry about that. I entitled it Biological Security and Health in the Post-Pandemic World. The in, then a question mark is a subtitle. Is this the infectious disease community's mushroom cloud? Our, uh, our nuclear scientists and policy scientists uh, throughout the years have had a mushroom cloud to say, this is really important. What we're doing with regard to nuclear preparedness is really important. Mm -hmm. Maybe this will be our mushroom cloud for, for uh, infectious disease uh, scientists and, and healthcare providers. I think it will provide awareness among our leaders. If this didn't get their attention this time, uh, nothing will. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious. Yeah. Uh, technically, I think maybe electronic delivery of, of healthcare will get a big boost out of this. Um, we used to call it telemedicine in the 90s. I've heard it now called cyber medicine mm -hmm. as well. And down at the population level, I hope we see more awareness among our citizens with regard to preventive medicine, simple things, healthy lifestyle. We've all seen that if you had comorbidities, obesity, mm -hmm. which is rampant in this country, uh, diabetes, heart disease, which are often related to uh, obesity, uh, these are preventable things. And I hope that we as, as the citizenry take a another look at our lifestyle and say, hey, are we doing the best we can? Uh, so I think at all levels, from leadership down through technical, hopefully to uh, the citizens themselves, we might look at life a little bit differently in the future. So picking up the tack on, on the technical aspect, and you mentioned cyber medicine, uh, my question for you, Nino, is around the technologies that we might see coming forward. And so what, what technologies do you see becoming even more critical in addressing future outbreaks? And what should administrators be looking to do now to be ready for the future? Thanks, Paul. And Dave already mentioned about this uh, digital medicine. Digital mm -hmm. technologies will be, I think, booming in the next uh, coming years or if not decades. And the reason for that, first of all, the speed uh, of delivery and also touchless technology because you don't have to be in a common space uh, where the potential of uh, infection spread is higher. And I see it in my, amongst my friends who are practicing so-called telemedicine and more um, frequently than they used to do it. But they also do complain about certain quality and uh, certain aspects of uh, telemedicine that we have currently. I don't think the telemedicine has caught up with the needs of the society or the needs of uh, healthcare needs. So I think there will be a lot of development in that uh, regards. Also thinking about, we, Dave, I believe we touched about uh, bringing supply chain and production back. Whether or not we have a production and supply chain like owned by individual countries and those technologies will develop and we will not be offshoring those capabilities uh, to other countries. I think that will be a change uh, in mentality or some actions even seen there. And not necessarily technologies, but I believe again, uh, pandemic preparedness mindset hopefully is improving and uh, 
as they mentioned, if this is not changing people's mind and showing them the importance um, of uh, preparedness, I don't know what else will be. We can write and research and write a lot of great speeches and show a lot of good evidence, but until people experience it and they see, uh, they see the truly what devastation the pandemic can bring of this extent and this scale, I don't think uh, people understand or realize how, how deadly it can be. So pandemic preparedness, if that can become a little bit more like always be on a back burner or, or for the health providers or health administrators, and therefore then thinking about how to mobilize the critical resources, manage the space, manage safety, and manage healthcare worker, as well as the public communication, I think those will be the critical changes that we will be seeing in coming short and near future. Okay. And then Dave, you had mentioned, we kind of touched on this a little bit about the, uh, the need for communication. And so, you know, what lessons in interagency inter communication and collaboration are especially important to be mindful of when an outbreak is first identified and how can we ensure agencies optimize their ability to cooperate? Yeah, so much of this is about people, people and leadership. Um, I look back to a time when Tom Frieden ran the CDC, Andy Weber was at OSU Policy, Peggy Hamburg was at the FDA, uh, Nikki Laurie was at Asper, and Carol O'Toole was at, at uh, BHF, S&P. They used to get together informally. They were all friends, they knew each other, and they used to collaborate on a Friday night, get together, and they did that for weeks or months. That kind of thing is pretty rare uh, uh, today, I think. Uh, with regard to organizing and keeping the communication open, it only all comes, un unless you have an unusual situation like I just described with five personalities, it all comes together at the White House, at the National Security Council. And unfortunately, the White House tends to, to get rid of their health security office, almost with every president. It happened with Bush too, it happened with Obama, and now it happened with Trump uh, some months ago, uh, only to be reinstated after the anthrax letters or after Ebola 14 or after some, some big event. Uh, the White House just, through administrations of every kind and color, just doesn't place national health and international health and security at a very, at a very high plane of importance. Something that has helped educate over the years, I think, are some exercises. Johns Hopkins has been pretty good at, at these, uh, these exercises to try to uh, make leadership aware of what's going to happen and how they're going to have to communicate when the when the problem arises, uh, but that's not a total perfect solution either. I think it was President Eisenhower who said, "Plans are useless, but planning is indispensable." Hmm. So we've got to do this planning. It may not turn out just like we said it would, mm -hmm. but we've got to get together as sub organizations within the government, plan together, and you know, exchange business cards anyway, so that we have open lines of communication uh, when this does occur. So it sounds like it's not really a red state or blue state problem. It's just, it's a kind of a political landscape, the, you know, 
they're just not putting enough emphasis on on health security and they're focused on other things and then then when there's an emerging threat or problem then it's you know they activate but that they really need to get in in advance of that and encourage communication and, and collaboration at, you know at a personal level it's not like they don't have anything to do normally <laughs> they're swamped and they're overloaded but mm. we, we can't forget about these health security issues at, at the national central level gotcha okay so my last question for the day i have is, is really for both of y'all so and it's it's kind of looking beyond pandemic preparedness. Um, you know, we've really been focused on on how you know we're addressing COVID nineteen and whatnot. But obviously, this has been kind of a watershed moment for the healthcare system, you know, globally. And so, um, this, this question is kind of like in terms of where we go from here. Where are and I'll, I'll start with you, Nino, and then David. I'll, I'll ask you the same question, but. Are there any changes you see occurring in health systems uh, across the United States or internationally as a result of the current pandemic beyond just pandemic preparedness? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Paul. I think um, the changes are definitely there and it's not only in the healthcare. And I think we can see that the different levels and different um, groups. So let me start with the public. The change in public is uh, awareness and behavioral change. Mm -hmm. as, uh, as I said before, people don't understand the severity of the situation until you're in the middle of the situation. We can talk as much as we want and explain, but I think the best example is when you are part of the example, right? So the, as 9-11 changed everybody's lives and how we view the international or like um, actually air, air travel, I think this will change uh, and we are seeing the impact of uh, public population behavior. Um, I will be interested to see how this is gonna stick with the public in a year or two. I'm, I'm curious to see how, if, if it's gonna have a long lasting effect, but definitely awareness about infectious diseases improved. And I think uh, people started to learn a little bit of the risk assessment concepts I always joke, um, I've assessed many different uh, healthcare systems around the world. And when I go into unrecognized spaces or hospitals or whatever, and I don't know what I'm facing there, I, we, we, do, we specialists do have like a little bit OCD about risk assessment. You're constantly checking mm -hmm. what you're touching, where you're going, where you're stepping, what are you breathing in, what type of the precautions you need to use to protect yourself, right? And, um, and others. So that's the type of the OCD I think that public is a little bit developing. So that's what I was referring when I said people are changing their behavior. Like uh, funny, I see a lot of times I go in a grocery store, people are not properly using the PPE and they still don't know how to use it and how to um, get the benefits out of it. But I think we are on the learning path. That's when it comes to public. Now, on the healthcare administrator side, I think the healthcare system will learn and the, again go back to into the preparedness mode and i, I believe dave mentioned uh, something hits uh, the system like ebola and everybody now all of a sudden starts developing the ebola preparedness plans then we have a flu then everybody starts preparing for the flu i think this is again another trigger and lesson learned when the administrators will start thinking about how to uh dust off their old plans or develop the new plans However, the critical component that I want to emphasize, it's not about having the plan on the paper. 
But having that muscle memory, then when you have a plan, you don't have that much time when something hits to think about like, what do I need to do? You need to exercise those functions. When you have a plan, healthcare administrators, healthcare system needs to be exercising this regularly. So when you're a doctor and there's a patient in front of you, you don't necessarily have time to run around and like refresh your memory. The procedures and your actions need to be at the muscle memory level. You need to be ready to act. I think that's what I would like to see, the more, more preparedness. And I think we will see that um, happening, the change happening in the healthcare system. And at the uh, government levels, uh, both in US and internationally, I think there's, uh, the, again, going back to awareness and awareness is improving. So that you see a lot of uh, actions that reversing, for example, uh, funding going to the certain research communities or certain actions that were critical for preparedness are going, now they are reinstated and they are going back, if not like more forcibly. So I think um, huge, I call COVID uh, pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic as a huge field top exercise. It's a bad comparison, but honestly, I could never design the scenario like this. Um, and it was very hard when I was running uh, preparedness scenarios with other countries, I would say, hey, what if your pandemic or epidemic in the country hits this level? And the people always used to tell me, it's never going to happen in my country. It will never happen in my country. And all of a sudden, the entire world got stopped in its tracks. So yes, it can happen to your country. It can happen to really powerful countries. It can happen to Less powerful countries, low resource, high resource, doesn't matter. This pandemic hasn't spared anyone. So we need to learn a lot of things from this. And that, that will be probably my parting words here. All right. And then Dave, same question for you. Uh, yeah, well, Dave. Nino's done such a great job of, uh, of covering that space. Uh, I am not a, a clinical person. All of my work has been research and preclinical kinds of things throughout my career but we'll probably change the way we build hospitals in the future with more flexibility, I would think, maybe different air handling systems and redesigning entryways and, and things like that. We may even do the same for hotels in the future, should they be needed to, uh, as hospitals. Uh, Mino has also mentioned uh, the behavioral lessons that we will have hopefully learn uh, to include familiarity with PPE uh, and, and all of those little uh, uh, thoughts that she had as she's walking through a, a healthcare setting about what can jump out and bite me. I need to keep that in mind. Uh, maybe antimicrobial resistance as well. This is another huge problem. It doesn't get much press in this country, um, but it's a, it's a big one and we need to to keep that in mind as well going forward. So I think in summary, uh, you've already heard that I believe that people are hugely important. People understand, people with wisdom, people with technical knowledge. So I would reward sound leadership and sound leadership will encourage mentoring and we, we can build uh, subject matter ex experts that way. Sound leadership will also build teams uh, where people are comfortable working together. And those teams, of course, would be domestic, but I think we need to think about international teams, particularly with regard to, uh, to infectious disease. So 
in one sense, this will cause us to circle the wagons a little bit and say we need to more, be more dependent for certain of our supplies and, and uh, medical materiel on ourselves. We need to be, take care of ourselves in this regard. But I think from an epidemiological standpoint, we need to reach out all the more and work internationally uh, to build teams and, and networks of people of trusted relationships with open communication. I always say when you have a trusted relationship, you can hear the bad news as well as the good news. And it's important in these cases that we hear all the bad news that's out there so we can, so we can deal with it. And then, uh, you know, practice, practice, practice. We probably won't end up, as we said, and, and as President Eisenhower said, we probably won't practice the right things. But practicing will, will set, make a mindset, and it, it will also importantly bring the right people together so that they will be, it will be easier for them to work together in, in a real situation. Excellent. Well, with that, I, I want to thank you both, uh, Dr. Nino Kadroshvili and Dr. David Franz, for joining me today and talking about healthcare uh, preparedness in light of the pandemic and sharing your expertise with our viewers. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Paul. You. Thank you, Dave.